and I'm honored here today to fill in for Pastor Rob while he's away. Uh, Let me pray for us one more time, and then we'll jump into it. Uh, Lord, we ask that you'd be with us. We know that our our greatest good uh, is when you're with us. And we ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us through your word, and that you'd lead us unto yourself more and more. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So while your church has been studying the book of Matthew, uh, or the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the church that I attend, we've been studying the book of Colossians. Um, It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. And our passage today is going to be from that letter. Uh, We're going to look at the Christ hymn of Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, And the lead-up to this hymn is a two-verse explanation of the Gospel in 13 and 14. And the Gospel, remember, is the very good news of what God has done for us in Christ. Um, And in this section, Paul teaches that we were under the power or the kingdom of darkness, but now we've been set free in Christ. And not just set free to wander, but we've actually been rescued into and unto a new kingdom. It's this new exodus experience where we're rescued away from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom that is light. And this light, it expels all forms of darkness. Uh, It exposes, it rescues, it forgives, it heals. And as we continue, I'm going to ask you to keep this idea of Christ as King kind of at the forefront of your mind. Uh, And right after this gospel reference, the Apostle Paul, he kind of breaks into song. And I'm not sure about Pastor Rob, but our pastor at CV Baptist, sometimes he'll stop kind of mid-sermon and just sing a song. And it's really cool in a lot of ways because he's come to the point where he, there's nothing better to say but to, to worship. Sometimes it's awkward for us because we don't know if we're supposed to sing along or not. Uh, and so kind of half the congregation does and half doesn't. And we have a, a half-sung song. But uh, it seems that the Apostle Paul does something really similar here. And we're not sure if um, the passage is really a song or if it was a creedal statement that was used But there's enough indicators in it that it's earned the title of the Christ hymn. And this Christ hymn is an exalted and extended description of who the risen Jesus is. Uh, And we're going to read it today, and then we'll go line by line and consider what it can mean for us right here and now as the gathered church. And I'm hoping that as we do this, uh, like the prophet Isaiah says, we can drink deeply from the wells of salvation. Um, it's very possible that some of us um, have been living and believing and being in such a way that we've kind of become a famine unto ourselves, um, where our spirits get dry and untended, um, and maybe even beginning to languish and crack, and therefore we're in great need of, what, of gospel refreshment. And I pray that as we behold Him in this Christ hymn, that He would offer us just that that we might come to love, worship, trust, obey more and more and more uh, as we see him exalted. So let's, let's read this. And I know here, yeah, it gets projected. Uh, and so I'm going to read this uh, all the way through, and then we'll go line by line. This is verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. Uh, Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Um, The disciple John writes, no one has ever seen God, but he, speaking of Jesus, has made him known. Jesus makes God known to us. He's the very image of God, the invisible made visible, revealed more and fully in the face of Christ. I think also of Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll, I'll quote this. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ is the physical image of God on earth, uh, the fullest revelation of God. And what great comfort that is, right? Do you want to know who God is, what he's like, and what his heart is towards you? Well, then look to the person of Christ who humbly gave himself for you, a a holy God of self-giving love uh, who invites you into his kingdom and into his joy. And he is God in the flesh. Uh, Now, this next phrase in the passage is a little bit trickier, the firstborn of all creation. And the reason that this trips us up is that it sounds like Jesus is being described as the first thing that God created. Uh, Yet the term firstborn, it doesn't have to have this sense. Uh, Its literal sense is one of temporal priority. Like my brother Scott is the firstborn. He came first. And if we were ancient Hebrews, he'd be entitled to certain privileges and honors that would attend that. But in the Bible, sometimes you have more metaphoric senses, such that we see in Psalm 89, where God says to the Davidic king, I will make him the firstborn, the highest king of the kings of the earth. Now, David was born like eighth or something, right? But he says, I will make him the firstborn. So the designation has less to do with time and more with significance of the position. And in Psalm 89, the firstborn is a title for the ark king. It's a description of rank and significance. And in our context, Christ is the chief of creation, the crown prince of all that is. Now, another interesting note, in some Jewish thought, um, this idea of wisdom uh, gets personified as a pre-creational being um, through whom God would create and sustain the world. And though it occurs later, there's at least one other Jewish author who refers to wisdom as God's firstborn son. And it's possible that Paul has a lead on this, and he's saying, yes, exactly. And let me tell you who wisdom really is, Um, who the firstborn really is. He's the incarnate Jesus. He was here, and it changes everything. And I should add that it wasn't just Jewish thought that had some of these ideas. Even Greek philosophers taught about a preexistent power a force that would hold things together, a logos, a divine word. And it's maybe Paul and John are doing something similar. Like when John says, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God and was God, and the logos became flesh and tabernacled among us, this creating and sustaining force calling all things into being. Paul might be saying, yeah, it's true. And his name is Jesus. Those things are true, and they're true in him. 
Let's move to the, to the next verse. Uh, it was, I think, verse 16, right? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Uh, this verse seems to put him outside the realm of time and creation. He, the firstborn, is the pre-creational king. Uh, and all things are given life and being by his very words. Uh, what power, right? Uh, there was darkness and God said, let there be light and there was. In, in the ancient Near East, there was often creation stories and they, they would feature uh, battles where a pantheon of gods would try to overcome the forces of chaos and then they'd create the world. Well, in the true story, he has no rivals. He just speaks. Um, and all things, you know, it includes thrones and dominions and rulers. And there's kind of debate whether these refer to angelic entities or earthly empires or some power that rebelled and kind of became demonic or some combination. Uh, whatever they are, they're ultimately subservient to the firstborn. They're under him. They're made under him, which has a lot of implications for us and ones that Paul teases out through the rest of his book. And then we get the phrase, through him and for him. In some way, uh, all things were created not only through Christ, but also for him, for his glory and for his good. And somehow this is also connected to our good. Uh, verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a description of preeminence. He's the high king of heaven. Uh, he's before all things, and all things are sustained by his word. All of life, whether biological or spiritual, everything is held together by his power. Um, verse 18, we're moving quickly, here, but we'll pause here in a second. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, there's three things that I want to focus on here. Um, one, he's the head. The second, that he's the beginning. And the third, that he's the firstborn from the dead. And most of our description, uh, I'll focus on this first idea, that he's the head of the body. And the body here refers to, to what? The church, right? Yeah, the body refers to the church, which is this organic symbol of our life together in him. And the authority of the body is the head, uh, the, the brain. And Christ is being called the authority, the king of the body. And he is a good one. Uh, and as such, as a good king, as the good head, he only commands what is good. Uh, he only commands what is restorative. He only leads the body towards things that bring about health for the body. Uh, he never demands anything else. Every command is also an invitation into bodily health. Now, will the good king restrict you? Yeah. He'll say no to your vice, to excesses, to deficiencies. He'll say no to practices that would enslave you. Um, he'll say no to anything that will bring harm to yourself, to others, to your relationship with God. He'll say no to those. He'll say no to greed and to gossip and to legalism and to pride. Anything that tears apart instead of building up, he'll say no. 
And will he put limits on us? Absolutely. Like something like fire. I mean, fire is really beautiful, right? It brings light and heat and energy, but it's not beautiful when it runs up the sides of houses. You know, certain things require limits and things start to unfold when the limits or boundaries are are transgressed. Now, the limits that the good king, the head, gives us, they're either, one, protective, like uh, I think of when I had a small nephew asking me for the large kitchen knives, and I thought, you know, I'd rather, no, this is a bad idea, I'm going to say no because I love him, and he was upset with me. Uh, But that's a protective limit that I've placed on him. You're not allowed to play with the knives. Uh, and And it makes sense, right? And so the limits are either protective or they're intrinsically connected to the goodness, truth, or beauty of a thing. Um, kind of like, like music. Um, you know, we, we just heard beautiful piano music. Music has scales. And, and when you operate in them, it's, it's beautiful, but there are forms of transgression that can result in, in ugliness or disharmony or, or discord. Uh, mathematics, also, they have patterns that can't be changed without error or consequence. Sorry, I should have just said math. Saying mathematics sounds weird. <laughs> math ha- has patterns that can't be changed without error or consequence. And so also, what is good and right and true, it has a pattern to it. A natural rhythm and order that has to be learned, and there's ways of playing it wrong. Now, on, on a piano, there's no wrong notes. There's no note that you're never allowed to press, but they can be played in the wrong order. Uh, or in the wrong combination, or in the wrong way, or at the wrong time. And they can be played ugly, or they can be played with deep beauty. And so also with us. Um, Christ in himself as head, and in his teaching, he shows us the basic notes and chords, and then he sets us free to live a life of wisdom and love under his kingship. And there's tons of freedom here. Just as there are many different types of music and ways to play music, There are many ways for us to play out our freedom in Christ. But even something as improvisational as jazz has a scale. It has a a limit and boundary that, when followed, leads to beauty. And our scale is Christ himself. The the melody of self-giving love played out in thousands of different arrangements and thousands of different faces and places and so on in the life of the church. And as the head of the church, he's therefore the authority of the individual Christian. Not just the authority for us corporately, but for each individual. And he sets the norms and values. He defines good and evil. But not by arbitrary whim. Um, He sets it in accord with who he is. And this is perhaps one of the hardest parts about true belief or faith is that it's not just intellectual assent. It requires a commitment. It makes demands of you. Now, you've experienced this, correct? It, it makes demands of you. We're actually called to surrender, to give up our rights, to give up our sense of our autonomy, to die unto ourselves. We're called to give ourselves completely over to him, to the head, to the king. And this is challenging for a myriad of reasons, right? Uh, Some of it is we're afraid we'll somehow lose our true selves. Or we're afraid that we're going to miss out on something that everyone else is getting 
it requires a real trust. Um, but he's proved that he loves us. He's shown that to us on the cross, right? Where he gave all his life to help us. He's shown us that he's trustworthy. And like I said before, he's not kind of whimming out random commands and restrictions. He's true. Therefore, what he commands is true. He's good. Therefore, what he commands is good. But since we live in a world that is upside down, and we all suffer sin-sick hearts, the good, it often appears less so. Um, but it's not. And in fact, who should know better than Christ himself? Because in this poem, in this hymn, we see that he created everything, and he's the one who wove wisdom and goodness into the very fabric of the universe. He knows it perfectly. So when he says that forgiveness is well sought, but revenge is not, it's true. Even if that's not the way we feel, even if that's not the contours of our culture, it's true. If compassion is better than exclusion, peace and unity over, over gossip and striving for power, temperance is to be preferred over excess, courage over timidity, justice over neglect, love of neighbor and love of God over love of self, he knows what he's talking about, right? He's a good king. And I think deep down, we, we know these things too. Um, we know that in Christ, these commands are not burdensome. They're rescue and they're love. And they lead us towards what we could call flourishing in his kingdom. And I want to distinguish um, the sort of flourishing or prosperity that we might normally associate with consumer comforts. That's not what I'm referring to. We're talking here about being thick-souled. Excuse me, am I doing this wrong? You guys can hear me okay? loud for me. That's, is that okay still? Yeah. Cool. That's a little better for me. I feel like you can hear like eight of myself. Um, we're talking here about being thick-souled, about being about God's work in this world, about holiness and self-giving love. I mean, the flourishing of the kingdom, it involves pain. It involves suffering because we're called to bear each other burdens. Uh, and it also will involve joy and peace. Because our template, our scale, our king is the one who gave up his life for others. And he calls us to follow him. And that's our highest good in following our king. But that sort of flourishing does involve the whole gamut of the human experience. And as the head, um, no other voice outranks him. Uh, Adam and Eve quickly listened to other voices. And the other voices were very well-dressed and they were very seductive. And they offered pretty good things, but in really bad ways. And very often, the good desires of our hearts can get co-opted by wrong voices. So that's why we have to stay in connection with the head. We have to draw near so that we can know his voice, so that we can recognize it, because it's his voice that matters most to us. Um, this next thing, this good king is secondly called the beginning. Sorry, we spent a lot of time on the head. He's also called the beginning, because he's the beginning of a new creation. Uh, kind of this spring of righteousness that's grown up out of the winter of our sin. Uh, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the new Adam, the first and foremost of a whole new humanity. And he is the start of God's rescue of the whole world, where the old is fading away and the new is eclipsing upon this one. Uh, the pioneer, the, the new Adam that invites us to be what? 
born again into new creation life. Thirdly, he's referred to as the firstborn from the dead. And notice the translation here, from the dead and not of the dead. I think the translators might be emphasizing uh, a difference here before, you know, uh, and maybe Paul's playing with the ambiguity of the language, before, you know, uh, he used the metaphoric sense of firstborn in verse 15. And here I think he uses both senses. For surely Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and that he's the first one to be granted a resurrection body. He pioneers death and resurrection on our behalf so as to win it for us. Um, And in so doing, what happens? He's enthroned king of the world as a man. As a man, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. So he's both first in order and first in rank. Now, first century Jews, many of them believed in the resurrection of the dead. But they believed that it would come at the end of space, time, and history. And in a very radical fashion, Jesus brings it right into the present. And he says, I'm the resurrection and life. And he offers them a spiritual resurrection in him that then anticipates and leads into a full resurrection at the end of time. This was, um, how do you say, unexpected, to say the least. Um, and as such, Jesus is the first fruits of new creation. Um, now, I don't know what kings did back then most of the time, but in our imagination, we'll just imagine they sit on their throne all day. Uh, so when kings would be sitting there on their thrones, the servants would come and they would bring the first fruits of the harvest. And they would say, look, here's a signal of what the rest of the harvest will bring about. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, a signal of what's yet to come. And he says, as I have been raised, so also the new humanity will be raised in me. Um, and this new humanity is anyone who's united to him through faith who is able to join, to be crucified and buried and raised in him through faith. And so that in the end, him being the firstborn from the dead guarantees that death does not win. Its sting is very, very temporary. Um, that's worth saying amen, right? Um, verse 19, our next verse. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In the Old Testament, God would choose dwelling places for himself, places where heaven uh, would touch earth and mankind could commune with him. These were access points between heaven and earth. And in the New Testament, it says that Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And Jesus goes on to refer to himself as the very temple of God. Um, He becomes the living meeting place of heaven and earth. Because all the fullness of God was in Jesus. So that means God was really in our midst for our good. And it's just scary every single time that I read the New Testament. You guys probably have experienced it a lot in Matthew, where the Pharisees are seeing God in their midst, and yet they hate him. And this should be a warning to us how backwards sometimes we can get in our thinking. Um, Now, I want to pause on this idea of fullness, because it's also possible that Paul is once again making another allusion to um, some of the dangerous beliefs that were common in his day. Uh, throughout the book of Colossians, if, if you read it, you hear about this other sort of teaching. And it sounded very good, but really what it was doing was pulling people away from Jesus. Even when it talked about Jesus, it was pulling them away. And we often refer to this as the Colossian heresy, and it's what Paul is warning them against. And some scholars believe that 
the people of Colossae were being offered a spiritual, quote-unquote, fullness. That they were being saying, the fullness is over here, not with St. Paul, it's over here. Well, they wouldn't say saint. Not with Paul, it's over here. That, that this idea of fullness was a key word for some of the false teaching around them. And Paul here says, yes, there is fullness. Here is the true fullness in this hymn. You, you don't need to seek it elsewhere. The thing you're searching for, that longing, that desire of your heart for everything to be as it ought to be, these are really desires for true God. And guess what? He's here. Christ is the fullness. Take hold of him. You don't need it elsewhere. In contrast to maybe the way that they were seeking fullness elsewhere. And we can probably relate to that, right? When we seek fullness elsewhere, when it was right here in Christ. And then verse 20, our last verse here. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, sorry, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is a huge statement. Uh, God's plan is to reconcile all things through Jesus, uh, the king of the cosmos, the king of the new creation, and that through his death on the cross. Um, gosh, we could do about the next hundred sermons on just this, uh, and they'd be probably well worth it. Um, the incarnate son of God, when he dies on the cross and his eventual resurrection and ascension, they're the central means by which God is going to restore all things. You can see in Romans 8, uh, him connecting the restoration of the cosmos with, with the redemption of mankind. Uh, this is kind of central to, to the Christian faith. And it says that Jesus is making peace. And Jesus does this by, one, satisfying the justice of God at the cross. He also makes peace by defeating the tyrannous enemies like sin and death that were after us. And in our case, he makes peace by forgiving and loving us. Um, by forgiving and loving us, you know, who were posturing as enemies. Um, and he offers us peace at the cross. In fact, he makes peace possible at the cross and invites us into reconciliation. Uh, and what is reconciliation? It's the reconnecting of things that have been rent apart. You ever like ripped your shirt and you're like, man, I wish that hadn't happened. I wish I could just go back. And it's like, but it can't. Now, this was something way bigger. It was ripped apart. And yet God says, I'm going to make peace. I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to bring back. That which was far off will be brought near. Like the relationship between man and God. The relationship between man and wife. The relationship between man and man. I mean, think of the, uh, even in the garden, right? As soon as they sin, they start pointing fingers and running from each other, running from God, running from each other. I mean, everything splinters out from the relationship of God and man being rent apart. But here we're said that there's peace and reconciliation in the cross of Christ. Even, you know, man's relationship with the earth, all things reconciled, brought back. And in the New Testament, we get an early sign of this when we see the, the Jew and the Gentile who were separated by race, and who are separated by religion, and were separated by culture. And yet God tears down the wall of hostility and calls them to be one in Christ, since they're both going to be reconciled to God in the same way through him. And he gives this early sign of the reconciliation of all things, in that he's bringing people that normally would hate each other and be separate into one family. And, and that's kind of the end of our, our hymn, but I want to reflect a little bit more on two of the main ideas the first one is 
Christ is king over creation and new creation. And if he is king, it means you can't be. Uh, Job has been filled, which is really good because you and I don't do so good when our hand is the only one on the rudder. Um, we often, we see the right way and we might make even make mock attempts, you know, steering the way. It's like, that's the right way, but all the while we kind of just drift. It's, that's the way, that's the, and you say the right things, but you, I like that I can move. You slowly drift away. Um, this happens a lot with our hearts, right? We, we look the right way and we say the right things, but we just drift when we're the only one kind of steering. Um, humans, us, we're, we're too weak. We're too self-destructive to be Lord over our own hearts, We're not made to be autonomous from God. We're made to flourish under his good rule. We're made to be dependent on him. And so when we stray from him, it's actually dehumanizing. When we, discerning good and evil on our own has never been anything but self-destructive. We have to look to him for it. Uh, John Calvin, when talking about this verse, he says, in the first place, let us consider that our happiness consists in our cleaving to God and that on the other hand, there is nothing more miserable than to be alienated from him. And far too often, our, our misery is really self-made and our alienation kind of self-wrought. The, the truth about the world that we see in this passage is that Jesus is high king. He's creator, he's sustainer, he's redeemer, and this is good. And therefore, it's good for our hearts to recognize it that he is the chief authority over all created things and he's trustworthy and he loves us and he's proved it to us in the gospel. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for how you start your day or for how you work or for how you treat your family or in temptation or in the midst of really difficult days or when death strikes? How does the truth about who Jesus is and the message about him come to bear on these things? Is there any relevance? It's, it's often our task to draw out the implication of these truths, to take the abstractions and bring them right into our real life in the midst of your anxiety or, or your guilt. Christ is a good king, a gracious and trustworthy one, and he'll walk you through it and he'll lead you to rest. He's transcendent king of the universe, right? And yet he's also the good shepherd, willing to take you by the hand. He's high above and yet very near, and he knows what's best, and he has power to save, right? It makes me think of that old song, he is able, more than able, to accomplish what concerns me today. Uh, so the, the call is to return to him, right? To cry out to him, to find kind of like Hagar in the wilderness found, truly you are God who sees the afflicted, and then he draws near. The, the second thing I wanted to focus on, again, is this idea of the fullness of God is in Christ, Uh, God was present fully in Jesus, and then he offers that fullness to us. Um, So if the fullness is found in him, it won't be found in just your reading plan or your diet or your friends, even though those things often can be good and they'll maybe point you towards him and they'll lead to health, but they are not the fullness to which your heart is always going to long. You have to seek him and seek him for him in response to what you learned in the gospel. But if you try to use Jesus as kind of like the seventh step towards a fulfilling life, you're going to find yourself in a really weird spot. You have to seek him. He's not a religion. He's a personal God to be known and to be heard and to be loved. And to paraphrase Lewis, it's like this idea that sometimes you aim for earth and you you get nothing, but you aim for God and earth kind of gets thrown in. Um, 
for they shall inherit the earth. He can't be a means to something else. He is the goal. He is the fullness, right? And all these things shall be added unto you. And note also how this Christ hymn is kind of a, a therapy of sorts for those of us with false pictures about the world. Uh, very often we functionally live by wrong ideas and beliefs about God, about ourselves, about the world. And these things, they inevitably affect what we love and how we love and what we value and how we value and what we seek and so on. And false pictures often really malform us in a number of ways. And we'll find ourselves clinging to them and longing for things that are really temporal and of little ultimate significance. Well, this hymn that we've been studying it offers us a corrective to some of those false views about the world. Um, One of these false views that we often find ourselves living in is the idea that there's only a material world. Naturalistic materialism, that an impersonal, accidental universe without meaning, without goal. And it's very likely that no one in this room actually says, yeah, that's exactly what I believe. I'm not, we don't subscribe to this, but I'm concerned chiefly here with practice. The Christ hymn paints the exact opposite picture of the world. It's not an impersonal universe predetermined by the inevitable collision of motion, matter, time, and chance. No, in this hymn, what we, we have a cosmic king, and he's created us with a goal in mind, and he intervened in human history, and he enters its suffering, and he takes it upon himself, and he triumphs over sin and evil, and he calls us to join him in this work of restoration. I mean, this is created and ruled by a personal God. With, with human history actually has significance and meaning beyond sex, food, and drink. But we often will live like a materialist when we stop praying. Um, when we stop believing that he intervenes in human history, even though we know he does, right? We just celebrated Christmas, I guess a while ago now, but we celebrated Christmas, and, and when we celebrate Christmas, it's God coming down to us and entering our suffering. Um, we live like materialists when we devote all our energy into this life, uh, career and consumer comforts. Um, without any thought of the next. When we prioritize temporal goods to the neglect of eternal ones. Now, temporal goods are not bad, but when we prioritize temporal goods to the neglect of eternal ones, where, you know, uh, food, drink, sex, money, power, you know, become the main focus. And, you know, what good is it to gain the very world, right, but forfeit our soul in the process? Um, We also live like materialists when we start to think that God does not really care how we live. Um, that he doesn't really discipline the children that he loves. This is kind of like a moral atheism. uh, Because even in grace, God cares very much how you live. Why? Because he loves you, and he loves the people that are around you too. And we live like materialists when we neglect the fact that we are souls. You know, worship and prayer are like food and water for our souls. But we live like materialists when we we kind of neglect the fact that we're made to worship, to find meaning outside of ourselves. And what happens is we kind of end up very malnourished, living as if there's nothing beyond the material, nothing beyond the physical self. When kind of Epicurean uh, delight becomes the chief end, we start to live as if we're just a physical body and we forget we're also soul. Uh, I took a class once. Um, I guess I took a lot of classes once, but... I took a class once, and it was going over Islamic theology, 
and it was in the very, very limited uh, literature I was exposed to, I stumbled across this idea that I found really interesting, and it was this idea of practicing tavid, and it's this that's their uh, word for the oneness of God, the idea of monotheism, uh, that there's one God. They said, you've got to practice it. Now, we typically say what? We believe in monotheism. I believe in Proposition X. But we know that true faith has to transcend intellectual ascent. We, too, want to practice monotheism, right? But what does that mean? Not just to believe that only one God exists, but to worship one God, to follow one God, to listen to one God, to love one God each there, each day, right? And therefore, that involves um, we have to fight against that impulse of our heart to worship lesser things, uh, to try and tap ultimate meaning from things that are lesser, things that are going to prove totally unable to bear the eternal weight of a human soul. Um, you know, the classic list, right? You know, career, sex, money, power, relational validation, consumer comfort, all those things that they'll prove unable to bear the weight of our soul. And so for us today, thinking about all this, you know, I kind of want to ask the question, how do we practice Christ is kingism? I know it's weird, but Christ is kingism. How do we practice this? Because that's the true picture of the world. And we want to live into the truth. So what does that look like? What small steps as I leave today, you know, can I take to to love and obey and worship and follow him. Because Christ's reign is meant to cover every square inch of your heart. Are you okay with that advance? Every square inch. Or maybe do you find yourself fighting it? I find myself fighting it very often. But this is one of the very few battles where total surrender actually leads to victory. Where total surrender to the good king leads to total victory. Give it up to him. Uh, let him rule and reign. Uh, learn to abide in his way of being. Uh, in, in closing, um, in the beginning of the Bible, God created a world uh, and then called Adam and Eve uh, to bring the rest of his plan about. They're to cultivate. They had a job to do. So from the start, mankind is meant to participate in and also being the means of accomplishing God's will on earth. And as Jesus brings about the reconciliation of all things, so also we're called to join him in this work. Uh, Paul said he was a co-heir and co-laborer with Christ, uh, repairing things that were wrongly split asunder. And we do this in two ways. One is we proclaim the picture of Christ that we just saw, gospel proclamation. The Great Commission where God says, all, Christ says, all authority has been given me and I will be with you. Therefore, go teach and baptize and train to the ends of the earth. Uh, Paul also considered his work as the ministry of reconciliation, showing people the way back. And we too are part of this commission, telling people about Jesus and the peace that he has won for them as we show them the true picture of the world that we see in this Christ hymn. And the second thing here is uh, gospel living. Uh, we also join in the work of God when we reconcile warring factions. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. We saw Christ here was a peacemaking king and we're called to follow him. Um, where and how can we make peace? Well, probably first we should start just by not making war, right? And I'm just talking about interpersonally. We maybe start there. Uh, instead, you know, turn towards compassion, forgiveness, Christ-likeness. In Romans 8, it says that we're being conformed into the image of Jesus. So if we've trusted him for life and death and we're following him, the true king, we're supposed to be being made more like him, and he is the peacemaking king. And so we're supposed to join him in this work of peacemaking. 
in our hearts and in our homes and in our work and in our places. And it starts probably by, by not hating, uh, by not excluding others by some arbitrary requirement like style or fashion or denomination or class or race. Um, also, maybe by not repaying evil for evil. That's a hard one, right? Um, but instead, entrusting it to God by not continuing the petty cycles of violence within your relationships in place. Um, when cursed, what are we supposed to do? We bless. Uh, when struck, we retaliate with compassion and prayer. Uh, we peacemake with forgiveness when we give undeserved love. We peacemake, I'm going to do a list, by the way. We peacemake when we protect someone from an oppressor. We peacemake when we mediate between war and factions in the church or in work or in our families. We peacemake when we're generous with our time and our resources and therefore help lift someone out of another burden. We peacemake when we're kind instead of cruel, when we speak to build up instead of to tear down. We peacemake when we're humble rather than proud because pride leads to what? Division. We peacemake when we offer love as a gift and not as a means of control and power, which often we do, right? It's like I, I not give or I withhold love in proportion to how much that person does what I want them to. Um, that doesn't sound like a gift. It sounds like a means of control. And it's sickly and dangerous, but it's very easy for us to slip into. But Christ has called us to peacemake with him. To, and that's one of the ways that we practice this Christ is kingism. Um, I, I did that thing that maybe Pastor Rob's done, I'm not sure, where he says, in closing, and then 10 seconds, five minutes later, and then in closing again, sorry, in real closing. Um, and I think I've gone off a field kind of from our original text anyways. And things procreate according to their kind, right? Uh, beavers have little beaver children, uh, as far as I know. Uh, people have little people children. That one I do know. I've got nephews everywhere. Um, in the same way, hate begets more hate. Um, selfishness begets more selfishness. Pride, lust, envy, idolatry, all the dangers of the human heart, when allowed, they will procreate and populate the space of your heart. And these inhabitants will not be good stewards of the land. Um, they will sap every resource of your heart and they'll leave it littered with all sorts of stuff. Instead, we're, we're called later in Colossians to let the peace of Christ, that is the rest that the good king has won his good reign, we're called to let that reign in our, high, in our hearts, to practice Christ as kingism, because anything else will absolutely devour you. Um, and in Christ's reign, surrendering your freedom to him, it leads to more freedom. And just as evil begets evil, so also Christian virtue procreates according to its kind, ten and a hundredfold, so that love begets more love, faith begets more faith, Peace begets more peace, and so on and so on in your heart and in your loves and in your places. And our encouragement today, after meditating on this Christ hymn, is to practice living by what is true. And we've just been given a picture of what is true by seeing a picture of the risen Christ, King of all things. And so I'm calling us to, to practice living as if Christ is the peacemaking King of this world and the next letting that peace of Christ rule and reign in your hearts, it's not a burdensome thing. It's actually a burden-lifting thing. Um, so let's, let's welcome it. Let's seek it. Seek first his kingdom. 
Let's let the firstborn of all things, let him define good and evil because he's way better at it. And he loves us probably more than we could love ourselves. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I said a lot of words and some quick and, and, and poor. Um, we ask, Lord, that as we study your text, that we see you. Uh, you are the goal. Um, you're the king of all things. And we thank you, Lord, for the peace that you offer us through the cross. And we ask you uh, to give us courage to seek it first, to seek you and your kingdom first. And we thank you so much for the goodness and grace you've shown us. And we just ask that you'd be with this church as they, as they practice Christ as kingism, uh, living into the fullness uh, of you. In your name we pray. Amen.